0: I welcome all of you to uh, worship today at all of our locations around the Capital Region. You know, I I love to talk about this church because I I believe it's a work of God and and I just love what God is doing. And I I love Grace Fellowship for many, many reasons. But one of the reasons is because I truly believe, I love this about this church. It's, it's honestly more like a hospital for sinners than it is a, a haven for saints, if you don't know what I mean by that. This is a place where we can come and be honest and transparent about how we failed and where we've blown it, and what we're going to find is a bunch of other people who are also being very transparent and real about their blunders, but it's a place where we, we come as we are. But it's also a place where we're challenged not to stay the way we are. It's a place where we're challenged to become all that Jesus Christ designed us to be. I I believe that's what a healthy church ought to be like. As I read God's word, that's the kind of environment that I think God wants in, in the church. And here's the deal. People felt that way around Jesus. Sinners loved to be around Jesus, but he challenged them to be all God had designed them to be. He challenged them to repent and to receive God's grace and to change in, in, in positive, healthy ways. One of our goals in this series is that all of us would learn to respond to people just the way Jesus did, whether it's someone who's broken, hurting, a sinner, someone who's searching, whoever they are, wherever they are on the journey, that we would respond to them precisely the way Jesus responded. That's what a healthy church should look like today, a place where we're welcome, just as we are, but where we're challenged not to stay there, but to become all God designed us to be. Now, if that's you, if you, like me, consider yourself to be one of those broken people who failed God in many ways, today's message is good news for you. I invite you to jump in with me in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7. And I'm going to give you one sentence here. In fact, let's put it on the screen. And this one sentence really sums up everything we're going to say today in the message. Here is the sentence. Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt that leads to genuine repentance, which results in total forgiveness and leads to inner peace. Wow. There's a lot packed in that one statement, and that's where we're going to go today. So I invite you to go on this journey with us. Let's pick the story up in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, verse 36. It says now one of the Pharisees invited Jesus to have dinner with him. So he went to the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. When a woman who had lived a sinful life in that town learned that Jesus was eating at the Pharisee's house, he brought an alabaster she brought an alabaster jar of perfume And as she stood behind him at his feet weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears. Then she wiped them with her hair, kissed them, and poured perfume on them. Now, the first thing I want you to notice today is the first part of that statement that is, Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt. Now, I would guess that right now some of you are a little freaked out by that statement. To you. The phrase positive guilt sounds like an oxymoron because perhaps you've been trained by the culture and by the prevalent worldview that any kind of guilt is just bad. I mean we speak of uh, debilitating guilt, we speak of toxic guilt, I hear Catholics talk about Catholic guilt, we've got all these kinds of guilt we, we talk about but I find it very interesting. That even though this woman had been in Jesus' presence before, she wanted to go back there. She wanted to be around him, even though she was convicted of her sin, and yet she still came to where he was because he drew out this positive guilt in her. So here's the deal. When people ask me, Pastor, is guilt a good thing or a bad thing? I say, it depends. What kind of guilt are you talking about? Some guilt is definitely bad. Psychologists often speak today about the negative consequences of what is often called toxic guilt. For example, Dr. Albert Ellis, known as the founder of rational and emotive therapy, wrote a little booklet in which he said, there is no place for the concept of sin in psychotherapy. What? A statement. He stated the goal of psychotherapy is to eradicate the concept of sin because he says that most emotional problems stem from toxic, irrational guilt. Now, there certainly is a form of negative guilt. People may feel guilty for doing things that are perfectly innocent. I know people who feel guilty because they drive a nice car. Or because they may eat out at a nice restaurant. Or, or maybe they don't work out like they really believe they should. Some people like that have what the Bible calls a weak conscience. Their conscience is so weak. When they're working on their computer and it says, a sign comes up and says, you've, you've performed an illegal function or operation, they want to turn themselves into the authorities. I mean, they just have a sensitive conscience. They don't want to do anything wrong. They want to do everything perfectly. Toxic guilt may come from a lack of approval. Someone's putting expectations on you that you're not meeting. Perhaps your parents want you to call every evening. Perhaps they, you feel this guilt from them if you don't include them in the vacation or, or don't come every Christmas There's a t-shirt that reads, my mother is a travel agent for guilt trips. And some of you know what that feels like. Toxic guilt is also feeling guilty for things that aren't really your fault. Sadly, victims of sexual abuse are classic examples of this kind of negative guilt. Often people who've been molested as children feel that somehow it was their fault. They should have stopped it. Maybe they did something to cause it. Why didn't they do more to make it stop? Now, let's be very clear. Toxic guilt like that is always destructive. It produces depression, feelings of worthlessness and anxiety and depression, inferiority, I want to be crystal clear. Jesus doesn't want you to feel guilty for things you should not feel guilty about. But what is often overlooked in our postmodern culture today is that there is such a thing as healthy, positive guilt. When Adam and Eve disobeyed God in the Garden of Eden, they immediately felt guilty. Why? Because they were guilty. They had done what God had prescribed should not be done. So they hid themselves and tried to cover themselves over because they were alienated from God. That is a positive guilt that should motivate them toward change. You see, positive guilt is like a a red blinking light on your dashboard that says there's a problem here. Something's wrong. You need to pay attention to this. You need to act. You need to do something. Although I did, I mean, if that happened to you, you probably, your red light is blinking on your dashboard saying something's wrong with your guard. You probably wouldn't take a hammer and smash it because you're bothered by that red light. Although I, I did hear of one woman recently the oil light came on way overdue for an oil change, and she put a piece of tape over it so she wouldn't have to look at it. It bothered her, all right? No, you you don't want to do that. That light is a symptom of a deeper problem. It says if you don't act now, it's going to cost you later. So I say to you today that first of all, we need to understand that's the role of positive guilt. It has an upside. God is saying to us, do something about it. A junior high student may cheat for the very first time on a test. He makes an A, but when he gets his report card, you know what, it just doesn't feel satisfying because he knows he cheated. And it just bothers him, and it's empty, and he feels guilty inside. I ought to motivate him to do something. An executive uh misrepresents the company records, the bottom line, in order to deceive people. She knows it's wrong, but she rationalizes. Everybody does it, but after she does it, even though she is glorified in the company, she is praised for the bottom line. She knows it's not right. She knows she's done wrong, and she can't get it off her mind, and the guilt is eating her alive. That is positive guilt. The IRS set up a fund some years ago called the Conscience Fund in which people could repay back taxes. They could do it anonymously just to relieve their guilt. One guy sent in $200 in cash with a note which read, I cheated on my taxes years ago, and I just can't get it off my mind. If I still can't sleep, I'll send in the rest later. There is a guilt that's positive. Jesus draws that healthy guilt out of us. But here's the second part of the statement that I want you to consider. Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt that leads to genuine repentance. Now there's a word for you. Repentance. The Bible says this woman had a bad reputation in town. Everyone knew she was a sinner. Now, the text is not explicit, but it's commonly and generally assumed that she was probably a prostitute. She comes to Christ. She sobs with tears. She anointed Jesus with this pungent perfume, and she let down her hair in public, which was not something that a respectful woman would have done in that culture, And she dried Jesus' feet with her hair and kissed them. And notice Simon the Pharisee's reaction to this. Verse 39. When the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would know who's touching him and what kind of a woman she is, that she is a sinner. Now, Jesus knew that Simon was trashing his reputation at this point, but he did not rebuke this woman. In fact, he he didn't pull away from her. He didn't belittle her. On the contrary, he accepted this affection, and he defended, he defended this dear woman. Verse 40 reads, Jesus answered him, Simon, I have something to tell you. Now, Jesus here is about to appropriately confront this big muckety-muck in the culture. He's a pharisee and a well-respected one and one who's quite wealthy. Simon says, tell me, teacher. Jesus goes, two men owed money to a certain moneylender. One owed him 500 denarii, the other 50. Neither of them had the money to pay him back. So he canceled the debts of both. Now, which of them will love him more? Simon replied, I suppose the one who had the bigger debt canceled. Ah, you've judged correctly, Jesus said. Then he turned toward the woman and said to Simon, I'm struck by that detail that Luke puts in there. He turned to the woman, but he was speaking to Simon. Do you see this woman? I came into your house. You did not give me any water for my feet. By the way, which was a social slight in those days. It was a breach of etiquette. You normally did that for honored guests. But she has wet my feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair. You did not give me a kiss. Again, in the culture... It was customary. You greeted people, as many people in the Italian culture and other cultures do today, with either a kiss on the cheek or a kiss on both cheeks. That was the custom. Just a normal thing you did. It was a way to show uh, honor, respect, affection, just a hospitable thing to do. You did not give me a kiss, but this woman, from the time I entered, has not stopped kissing my feet. You did not put oil on my head. Again, customary thing to do. The oil was a, a sweet-smelling thing, but she's poured perfume on my feet. Therefore, I tell you, her many sins have been forgiven, for she loved much, but he who has been forgiven little loves little. What I'm saying to you today is that God doesn't want us to feel guilt, so we just wallow in it. There's no point in that. He wants us to do something. Jesus always welcomes repentance. But what is that? What is that weird word? We don't hear that word much. It's a a Bible word, though, that's used a lot. What does it really mean? Genuine repentance involves three words. Let me share those three things. First is conviction. Conviction is this understanding I'm wrong. And of course I feel guilty because I'm wrong. I've sinned against God and others. The second word is contrition. What does that mean? I'm sorry, truly sorry. I'm broken over my sin. This is often accompanied by tears, although not always. My heart is truly broken over what I've done. The third word is change. Conviction, contrition, change. And this is often overlooked. This is an attitude that says, look, I know I can't change on my own, but I'm willing to cooperate with God and truly change. His grace can change me, and so I'm willing to go down that road with God and let him change me. I'm going to quit rebelling against God. The Greek word metanoia for repentance means literally a change of mind. Meta, change. Noia, nous, the word for the mind. It's literally a change of mind and attitude. But in Scripture, it always means a change of life as well. A change of behavior. We're willing to do things God's way. Now, it's obvious from this text that that's what this woman was doing. She intended to change because she poured out all of her perfume. And that perfume was an important tool Of her trade. She was announcing from this point on, I'll never be the same again. Has that ever happened to you? Have you ever had that experience where you felt that conviction from God, that contrition, that deep sorrow for your sin? You acknowledged I'm wrong, and then you said, God, I'm willing to change. I'm going to take the necessary steps. Paul commended the Corinthian people for repenting of their indifference. And look at what he wrote in 2 Corinthians chapter 7. Yet now I am happy, not because you were made sorry, not because you just felt conviction and contrition, in other words, but because your sorrow led you to repentance, the full deal, he's saying. For you became sorrowful as God intended. And so we're not harmed in any way by us. Godly sorrow brings repentance that leads to salvation and leaves no regret. But worldly sorrow brings death. So what is he saying here? He goes on to talk about their changed behavior. So, so it's not enough today... If, when someone says, well, I repent, but, but here's, here's how I feel about it. God, I really did do wrong. Yes, I lied, I cheated, I embezzled that money. Yes, I stabbed that person in the back. Yes, I was unfaithful to my mate. Uh, yes, God, I cooked the books here. Yes, God, I, I've, I've done these wrong things. I've been mean and hateful. And You know what? I'm sure I'm going to do all that all over again. In fact, I've already got some plans to do some of it again. But God, you're the big one. You're the big guy in the sky. Forgiveness is your job so I know I'm covered. That's not repentance. That's presumptuousness. That's a warped understanding of grace. That's a disgrace to grace. That's not what the Bible means by repentance. If you exploit or try to exploit God like that long enough... What's going to happen is your conscience will become so seared in your sin, you won't even be able to sense conviction after a while. And you will quench the Holy Spirit's work in your life. So genuine repentance involves an honest, cooperative effort with God to change. It's not perfection, but it is a change of direction. And the truth of the matter is, some of you here today need to pour out the contents of your alabaster jar. You need to cancel some subscriptions. You need to go to that cabinet and pour out the contents. You need to delete some things from your calendar. You need to throw away those phone numbers. Some of you today need to pour it all out before God and say, God, this is a new day. I want you to change me from the inside out. I repent. Jesus encourages that. Now, friends, as we launch into this Grace in Action initiative that I've been telling you now for about for a few weeks, and we are serving the hungry and the hurting and the disillusioned people in our communities, we need to remember that ultimately Jesus is not looking, listen now, Jesus is not looking for us just to slap a Band-Aid on their problems. We're going to do all we can to relieve human suffering. And I hope you understand, as I said in week two of this series, that is good and godly in and of itself, no matter what the response. But ultimately, what we always want is radical transformation in people from the inside out. That's the goal for them. It's the goal for you. It's the goal for me. It's the goal for all of us. Our goal is total transformation. Now, each week we've been introducing you to one of our partners, and today I want you to listen to a brief video. Our Brian Chrisman, one of our members, sat down with Mike Sikosio of the Schenectady City Mission. Mike's a wonderful, passionate leader. In one way or another, he's been involved with the City Mission in Schenectady for 25 years now, a man I really respect. And I want you to listen to this brief interview. Mike, um, thank you so much for coming here today and and having this discussion with us. Um, Perhaps you could start out telling us a little bit about where the Schenectady City Mission is and where we are specifically today.
1: Brian, we're located right in downtown Schenectady. In in fact, the backside of Proctor's, which is a familiar landmark for a lot of people, we are right across the street. We presently occupy almost an entire city block with all our different buildings and our transitional housing. Could you give us a brief overview of what the City Mission is all about and highlight the various programs and services that the City Mission offers? We are here to proclaim the Gospel of Jesus Christ in word and in deed. So what we try to do is help people, as you said, who are in poverty, and to do so in a manner that is true to Jesus' teaching, that when that man comes, when that woman, when that child comes, it is Christ himself who is before us, and try to give them the most dignified, respectful, relevant service that we can. The third part, then, is to stay out of poverty, because the reality is Even when someone gets a job, on average, across the country, when people who have been chronically unemployed, when people in generational poverty get work, on average, it takes six years on the job before they're sustainable. So this is our Family Life Center. This is a shelter for women and children. It's also our life skills training area. Here we're really looking to do the classroom work, everything from money management to home management to parenting training to different Bible studies and support groups that we offer. Because we do have moms with children, and we want the moms to be spending time, of course, with their children, but they're also in classes, and they're getting training. So this is our child enrichment center. But This is really where the the men and women get trained in how to prepare affordable, good-tasting, nutritious meals. This is one of our classrooms. So you can see by the, the nature of the classroom, what we're looking to do is simulate what the workplace looks like or what college classrooms look like so we have clothing this is for people who come to the mission men women and children who just need everyday clothing if you look to the back we have a whole career clothing section because again one of the barriers to success in the workplace is are you properly dressed Do you have the right type of outfits for the workplace so we want to make sure that that barrier isn't holding people back. Well, This is our dining center and as I said before we serve close to 600 meals a day here uh, serving four meals a day, three for the men, women and children who live at the mission, then a fourth meal at night for anybody from the community who needs um, something to eat, needs a good meal. So the basic process for a, a man or, or women and children is they come into emergency shelter. They're, they're assigned a bed, or in the case of the women and children, an actual room, a small apartment. Uh, they're there as they get stabilized. They had the option of joining our one-year discipleship program called Bridges to Freedom. And then upon graduation, which is a big ceremony with caps and gowns, if they're interested, they can move into some of our transitional housing. So we're blessed to have 24 units. And one of the things that I see that, that the city mission of Schenectady is accomplishing
0: is, you know, through the people that, that come here and that maybe have come here with a drug addiction, have tried other, other ways and not been successful but have found success through Jesus Christ and that that transforming power that's there in Christ. And then now they're carrying that message to others
2: and they're here serving the mission and other people coming in and they can share their experiences with others. I think on December the 3rd in 1998, I'm walking to this place and I'm in darkness. I came with a little grocery bag low price shopper store plastic bag with all of my possessions in that bag and I came to the city mission. There was a light there that was stronger than anything and I know it was Jesus Christ. I had a warm bed to sleep in. I had clean clothes to put on, I had food to eat. you know I could I could wash my body like you know shampoo my hair. My life and my experience at the city mission was having a family, in my life that loved me until I learned to love myself. So where I am at now is I have, in Syracuse, I have opened a house similar to Serenity House, and now I'm giving back what was given to me. So I walk side by side with these women that come that are broken, that are homeless, you know, that women that have experienced prostitution, molestation, that come out of jail, that don't have a place to stay, that are living under bridges. So we bring them in and we give them a place to stay and then we give them the tools that will help them uh, maintain sustainability and develop healthy relationships in the community, and most importantly, with Christ. I'm just giving back. I want to I like cry, but I'm not going to cry right now, but I'm just giving back. It's so surreal, like, to be on the other side of the desk. I was all bowed down and ashamed and embarrassed of everything that I've done, everything that people have done to me, but now I have no reason to hold my head down or hold my head up. And I'm at a place now where, it's important that I give to people, you guys, at the city mission. And more, most importantly, what Christ gave to me when he died on the cross for me. And that was love, unconditional love.
0: Amen. What a powerful story of the kind of radical. Yeah, let's, <clears throat> let's give God praise. That's the kind of radical transformation that Jesus does in people. He, he blesses us. To be a blessing. He changes us so that we can be change agents. And that's really what this series is all about. We've been recipients of God's grace. We want to be conduits of that grace to other people. I'm going to mention uh, this just once again today in passing. The last couple of weeks, this is not in your bulletin today, but if you have not seen one of these little brochures, This is simply something we're calling Grace in Action. It has two main parts, as we've explained, and you can pick one of these up at the information center uh, after the service today. Please do if you're not aware of what this is. I'm glad to say that in spite of uh, some wintry weather the last two weekends, the response to this has been overwhelming. In fact, as of right now, we have 621 out of the 700 serving opportunities that are already committed to, that is awesome. Out of the 53 projects that we're gonna work on, we have 43 of those already full. We have everybody we need. But there are 10 more where we really need some more volunteers to serve. The service opportunities, as this brochure will, will tell you, are March 6 and 7, March 13 and 14. Do this together as a small group. Come with members of your small group. Sign up. Find one of these projects that still has openings. And let's slam dunk these 700 opportunities until they're all taken. Let's make a difference in Jesus' name. Now, let me also mention on the back side of this brochure is the churchwide food drive. And our goal as we set out, we're just going to collect food for three weekends, our goal is at least one food item or personal hygiene item for every man, woman, and child who comes. In spite of our weather last week, our first weekend of collection, we surpassed the goal. We actually had 1.13 items Per person who was in worship at all of our locations last weekend. And that's something to thank God for. That account amounts to. We were down over 1,000 because of the weather. But that amounts to 2,131 items that you guys brought. Can we just give God praise again for that? That is awesome. That's going to make a huge difference in the lives of a lot of people. uh, Just as you've heard about on the video. But let's quickly move on in this amazing story. The third thing I want you to see here is that Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt that leads to genuine repentance, which results in total forgiveness. He said to this woman in verse 48, your sins are forgiven. Now Jesus Christ may do a lot of awesome things for you, he may heal your marriage relationship that's on the rocks. He may put your broken family back together. He may heal you emotionally of, of awful things that have happened in your past. Jesus may lead you into a brand new job or career opportunity. Jesus may do, he may heal you physically, emotionally, mentally. There's all kinds of awesome things, but are you listening? The most awesome thing that Jesus ever does for us is when he forgives our sins. That is the greatest gift of all. The Bible says in Romans 4, Blessed are they whose transgressions are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man or woman whose sin the Lord will never count against him or her. We've offended Christ. We've acted selfishly. We've disobeyed. And when we come to him in forgiveness, he says, I understand. I forgive you. And here's the amazing thing. The Bible says that God will never hold those sins over our head again. Isn't that incredible? Jeremiah the prophet said, for I will forgive their wickedness and will remember their sins no more. Simon Peter acted selfishly on the night that Jesus was arrested. Under pressure, he cowardly denied that he even knew who Jesus was. And then, after these denials, he turned and saw Jesus looking at him and he felt convicted over his sin. The Bible says he went out and wept bitterly But his guilt led to change, to genuine repentance, to godly sorrow. And he came back in repentance to Christ. And less than two months later, Simon Peter is the primary spokesperson on the day of Pentecost when the church was launched in power. God's forgiveness is so amazing. Have you experienced that today? Have you ever come to Christ in repentance and said, Lord, I've, I've, broken your, I've broken your laws. I'm alienated from you. I need you. I need your forgiveness in my life. It costs Jesus his life, but he freely gives his grace. Finally, I want you to see today, Jesus wants us to experience positive guilt that leads to genuine repentance, which results in total forgiveness and leads to inner peace. In Luke 7, verse 50, Jesus said to the woman, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. What a statement. How could this woman who had lived such an egregious life of sin, how could she possibly go in peace? Two reasons. Number one, she knew her sins were forgiven. How did she know that? Did she feel a euphoric feeling all the time? Probably not, but that doesn't really matter. She knew her sins were forgiven because Jesus had promised that. He said right here, directly to her, your sins are forgiven. How do you know your sins are forgiven? Is it because you feel euphoric feelings all the time? Is it because you feel goosebumps? Is that the way you know your sins are forgiven? No. The the feeling has very little to do with it. We know our sins are forgiven because Jesus has promised that he would do that. In Acts the second chapter, we have recorded that Peter preached to the people on the day of Pentecost and they were cut to the heart and they said, what shall we do? What must we do here? And Peter responded, repent and be baptized every one of you in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins and you'll receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. Promises for you and your children, for all who are far off. That's us. For all whom the Lord our God will call. That is a promise. Jesus says, you turn to me in repentance. You You begin to walk in obedience to me. Your sins are forgiven. How do you know that's true? Because Jesus never lies. He always keeps his promises. Now, some of you are sitting there right now and you're going, but Pastor Rex, uh, I, I believe that. I, I believe that Jesus really saves people when, when they've not followed him yet. But, but see, my problem is I'm a, I'm a real Christian and I've, and I've done a lot of sinning. What about me? Does that promise of forgiveness apply even to me? I know better. It's a guarantee. That when we come to Christ, his blood will cleanse us from all sin. 1 John 1, if we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just and will forgive us our sins and purify us from all unrighteousness. We know our sins are forgiven because Jesus promised he would do that. And finally... Her second reason she could live in peace is her life was going to be different. She was not going back to that old way of using that perfume to sweeten the bed and entice. That old way of life was one of turmoil. She was now going to follow Christ in obedience. There, there was, there's something about obeying the Lord that brings a deep peace in our lives. Ralph Bell was an associate evangelist with Billy Graham for many years, and he told a homey story that I think illustrates how sin enslaves and how Jesus forgives. He tells about two little children who went to visit their grandparents, and the little boy made a makeshift slingshot and began to put pebbles in it and, and shoot them around at things, but he wasn't very good. He could hardly hit anything. And he was out in the woods shooting at trees and things and rocks. But he came back in the barnyard finally, kind of frustrated that he couldn't hit anything. And, and just on a whim, he put a stone in there and pulled that sling back and shot at his grandmother's pet duck. And amazingly, he hit the duck in the head and killed it. He was horrified. He was in a panic. He grabbed that duck and hid it under the wood pile. He was horrified. He didn't know what to do. He looked all around to see if anybody was watching, and thankfully nobody. But, but there was his sister Sally right over around the corner of the house, and she was watching. Later that day, after um, lunch, Grandma said, I'd really like Sally to help me with the dishes. And Sally said, oh, I think Johnny wants to help with the dishes, don't you, Johnny? And then she whispered to him, remember the duck. And so Johnny helped with the dishes while Sally went out to play. Later that afternoon, Grandpa said, I'd like to take the the kids fishing. Grandma said, well, that's great. I know they'd have fun. But, I, you know, I really was planning on Sally helping me a little bit with the preparation for supper tonight. And Sally said, oh, it's already been settled. Johnny wants to help prepare supper tonight. Don't you, Johnny? And then she whispered, remember the duck. And so Johnny stayed and helped with the chores while Sally went fishing. And after two days of doing all of Sally's chores, Johnny just couldn't take it anymore. And so he went to his grandmother and confessed everything. He confessed what had happened, and he was in tears, and his grandma grew him, drew him close, and she said, "Johnny, I, I saw I was looking out of the kitchen window. I saw everything that happened. I forgive you." But you know, I was just wondering. How long you were going to let Sally make a slave of you? Do you feel guilty for past sins, deeds done in darkness, and you cannot get it off your mind? How long are you going to let Satan enslave you when Jesus Christ, just like this dear woman today, invites you to come? a genuine repentance, and give your sins to him, to leave them there and receive his forgiveness, I invite you to do something about your guilt. I invite you to allow Christ to begin to forgive you and change your life from the inside out. Father, would you help us today? Help us to understand how amazing Your grace really is. Right now, in these moments, I pray that people worshiping you in Greenbush and Saratoga and Half Moon and and Latham, you're right there. I pray that they would know your presence powerfully in this moment. Father, they would not go another hour living with that guilt, but right now would just pour it all out to you. They would make an altar right where they are and just say, Lord, I give my life to you. All the junk, all the mess, all the sin, all the brokenness. Father, would you meet them right where they are by the Spirit? And would you forgive and set captives free so that they could leave this place today going truly free at last, free at last. Thank God Almighty, I am not a slave anymore to sin. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. God is doing a deep and powerful work in the lives of many people. I'm convinced of that.